there are a lot of people who are asking themselves when life goes back to normal, is the normal I'm going to go back to really the life that I want? And I think for a lot of us, letting go of the control of trying to just go back to the way things were allows us to open up our lens to the way things can be. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. What would you do if you felt truly limitless? What would you attempt? What would you build? Who would you approach? And I'm not talking here about the type of limitless that comes from taking a pill. For those of you who have seen the movie, great movie, or a day when suddenly you wake up and all of your inhibitions, fears, self-limiting behaviors and beliefs have disappeared overnight. I'm talking about, in the words of my guest today, those moments when the very best of what you are being called to do is being asked to solve the problem at hand. Laura Gassner-Oting would describe that moment or state as consonance. It's not a word that I had come across many times prior to this conversation, but simply defined, it's when the what you do matches the who you are or who you want to be and the limitless possibilities that result. Laura is the Washington Post bestselling author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life an amazing book that became one of Good Morning America's favorite books of the year. Her entrepreneurial edge was well honed over a 25-year career that started as a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House, then transformed into building an extremely successful executive search company. Now, as part of that role in executive search, she was responsible for recruiting and stewarding hundreds of leaders through massive career change. And what she witnessed over and over again during that time was that those who were able to tap into limitless potential always had four decisions in common. And these decisions were around their calling, connection, contribution, and control. Now, in this conversation, we dive into those decisions and much more, including why, when it comes to the direction of our lives, we often give votes to those who potentially shouldn't even have a voice. How to identify the current limits you've put on yourself and start to remove them. Why consonance is the key to unlocking limitless potential and important distinction here. It is not the same thing as feeling happy. Leading on from that point, specifically why following this path, this path into limitless will at some point undoubtedly kick your ass and how being willing to struggle for something is often the clearest sign that you are on the right track. The keys to discovering your calling and the difference between that and purpose. And trust me, there is a difference. And finally, how to get past the judgment that's so often associated with limitless thinking or unapologetic ambition and find some better language for ourselves. A couple of important side notes here. Firstly, this episode isn't necessarily about a complete life rewrite. 
there are many reasons why this may not be practical or even possible for a lot of us. Instead, it's about reevaluating whether right now you even feel like you're holding the pen. And secondly, one of the best pieces of advice I ever received early in my career was this, never compare your insides with somebody else's outsides. I remember thinking at the time, that was such a weird thing to say. The truth is we do it constantly. I do it constantly. There's always that person, you know who they are, who makes it look effortless, that their career path or business seems to just take one line, that straight line upwards, plus the majority of their social media posts probably end with hashtag YOLO or hashtag blessed. What I would love you to reflect on as you listen to this episode isn't what anybody else's perfectly curated vision of what successful looks like. And God knows there's no shortage of visions literally up for sale right now. Instead, I'd love you to focus on these questions. What does limitless feel like to you? What could you change to access that feeling more regularly? And if you did that, how would that shift your ability to influence or to really impact the things that matter to you? Now, if you're looking to take your journey into influence to the next level right now, don't forget to hop onto my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to rapidly increasing your level of influence. Just pop in your email and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to pour a fennel and licorice tea current favorite. My newsletter, Influence Insider, also gives you one bite-sized tool, strategy, or mindset shift per week into your inbox, all on the topic of building a more influential life. Once again, hop onto my website, juliemasters.com to become an insider. On that note, sit back, drive safe, stride out, and get ready for the force that is Laura Gassner Oten. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Hello. How are you doing today? Hello. I'm doing pretty good. Live from lockdown. How are you doing? Well, I am in the States, so we are not in lockdown right now, but we do have a variant surging and who knows what's to come? Who knows the curveballs that are coming our way? I think that's the theme of the last last couple of years. That is the theme. I think the idea is anything that you thought was for certain is absolutely not. I know. And it's an interesting idea to play with just in general. But we're not here to talk about that. Let's let's jump into you and and what you do so brilliantly. So I'm going to kick off with a question that I'm playing with at the moment on the podcast. And I'm playing with it because I have this theory over 20 years that people who have amazing ideas, people who, who are on the edge of what they do, tend to come across really interesting ideas before anybody else. So Is there one idea that's had a huge impact on you recently or is influencing your thinking at the moment above and beyond anything else? You know, I have been thinking a lot lately about imposter syndrome um, because I think a lot of us are trying to figure out when life goes back to normal, is the normal I'm going back to really the life that I want? And a lot of us are dreaming about what life could be if only we were good enough, smart enough, rich enough, powerful enough, had enough access, all of these things. And I think what's going to stop a lot of people from 
the place where they feel stuck right now to the life that they actually really want and secretly dream about and maybe can't even quite say out loud, but just sort of whisper to themselves is this feeling of failure, rejection, the lack of confidence, the uncertainty. But I think a lot of that um, is founded in this concept of imposter syndrome. And one of the things that I have been uh, enjoying reading uh, has has been some of the thinking around women and imposter syndrome. And there was a Harvard Business School article, Harvard Business Review article, uh, just a few months ago um, by a couple of women uh, who the title of the article is Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. And what I think is interesting about this is what they say is imposter syndrome puts the blame on the person who is feeling like the imposter when really it's the historical and cultural context that created the power dynamics which led these people to feel like they're imposters like if you are the first of to walk into a boardroom or onto a stage or wherever it is that you're going and nobody else there looks like you it doesn't mean you're an imposter it means you've actually done something right. You've broken a barrier. You've broken through. You've broken a ceiling. You are somewhere that nobody like you has been before, but that doesn't make you an imposter. It makes you a groundbreaker. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about this article and this idea that, you know, we feel like imposters because the role was created for a much more homogeneous type of leadership than the leadership that we're seeing emerging out of 2020 and into 2021. And what if we changed the way that we talked about this so that it wasn't that this is that you are the problem, that you are an imposter, but in fact, you're a groundbreaker, that you're actually the solution for everyone to come after. Oh, I love that. I love that as a reframe because the the idea of imposter syndrome comes up a lot on this podcast. It comes up, I, I actively seek it out at times. And sometimes it just, it, it comes in, in various different conversations with very successful people. And one of the things that is for sure is that very successful people still feel imposter syndrome. But I love what you've said there, which is the reframe, because a lot of people think about imposter syndrome as something they have to beat. You know, I have to get past it. I have to win the battle with it. But what you're saying there is that there's a total reframe here that rather than being something you have to beat, treat it as an indicator or treat it as a calling that I'm about to cross a line here. I'm about to cross a line into a place that either not many people have been, which is why I feel like an imposter or I have never been before. And that's what this voice is all about. That is what the voice is screaming in your head. Oh my God, you've never done this before. Oh my God, you might fail. Oh my God, you might embarrass yourself. Let's think about it this way. In old cars, there used to be this thing in the engine called the governor. And the governor was set up so that you couldn't press pedal to the metal and always go full out and either drive yourself off a cliff or burn the engine out. We have that same governor in our brain that's going, stop, danger, you haven't done this. This is too much. We don't know what's going to happen. And what if we change the governor from being the thing that stops us from either doing something stupid or literally burning out to being the cheerleader that's like, wow, you've never done this before. Amazing. You might fail, but you're going to learn. Incredible. You might embarrass yourself, but also the path could be amazing. So what if we just changed the way that that voice talked to us? Because the voices in our head, you know, are the loudest ones that are there. What if we changed our interpretation of the voice from the governor to the voice of a cheerleader? leader that's like, 
wow, this is the indicator that you are doing amazing things. Because when it's that way, when you hear it that way, we're not hearing it as danger. We're hearing it as opportunity. And I think when we do that, it changes everything. We have this thing called pluralistic ignorance, which says, I don't know what you know, and you don't know what I know. So neither one of us know enough, which means, Jules, that if you're standing there with tons of imposter syndrome, but acting all like cocky and confident, I'm looking at you thinking she knows what she's doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm even more of an imposter. So then I act more like I'm cocky and I'm confident. And then you look at me and you're like, well, Laura knows what she's doing and I don't know what I'm doing. So I better act like I know what I'm doing. And then the two of us are stuck in this perpetual cycle and it stinks. And that's why this diagnosis, this rush to imposter syndrome forces you to like fake it till you make it because it's like the medicine to get rid of the real you who's there when in fact, you know that the best leader leaders on the planet are the ones who are open and raw and vulnerable and show us who they are. And we call that feedback loop social media. I'm just thinking like that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It, it is the ultimate. And when I was on the, when my book first came out, I was on the Today Show and um, I, we were having a whole conversation about why we feel so stuck and we feel so afraid to try something. And I'm like, because we look around on social media and we're comparing our bloopers, which we see and feel deeply all day, every day to everyone else's curated highlight reel. And if you're, if you're comparing your bloopers to someone else's highlight reel, of course, you're going to feel terrible about yourself. And the craziness of that, you know, when you, when you put it like that, I mean, this is a, a sensation that we've all felt at different points in our life. You know, you look at social media, I don't spend a lot of time deliberately on social media, but you go in and you have a look, it's a quiet moment and you're looking at everybody else's highlight reel and you think, oh my God, like I, my life looks nothing like that. Like my, my parenting looks like they're wearing white. How are they wearing white? You know, there's, there's a couple of things in what you just said. One is, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm on the bandwagon now, you know, let's rename imposter syndrome, the groundbreaker. Like, let's not call it the imposter. Let's call it the groundbreaker and talk to it in our minds as the groundbreaker, as in, you know, oh, there you are. It's the groundbreaker. I'm about to break some new ground here. Thanks for, thanks for setting off the sirens to let me know where I'm at. Yeah. That's the, like, that is the sign for you to like dust your shoulders and be like, well, look at me now. <laughs> I didn't know you'd see me here. huh? Because think of like, I think at any any place you get to, you haven't been there before. Like if you are going to get a promotion or a raise or try a new career or a new hobby or whatever it is, you are going to be new. You will not know what you're doing. So of course you've never been there before. That's amazing. That is incredible. And the last thing you should be doing when you're stretching yourself to see what you're capable of is telling yourself that you suck. Like that is just what we call counterproductive. The the, the crazy contrary um, state of a human brain, which it's not until you verbalize it. It's not until you say it out loud. You know, we all know this to a degree. It's not until you start describing it out loud when you look at it as a strategy and go, well, hang on, that's just utterly self-defeating and ridiculous. But it's it's what we do. It's It's what we do inside. Absolutely. It's what we do. And it is, it is society's ultimate gaslight to tell you that you don't belong because nobody like you had ever been there before. And then we believe it and we echo it in our heads and it gets louder and louder and louder. We're like, I need a diagnosis. I need a prescription. Then I can get better. So let me find the diagnosis. So we rush in to say like, if things aren't perfect, there must be something wrong with me. 
when in fact maybe there's something wrong with the system it's it's there's a there is a quote that is often uh, uh, misattributed to Sigmund Freud probably it was said by some very exhausted flabbergasted woman it goes something like before you diagnose yourself with imposter syndrome or depression or low self-esteem just first make sure you're not in fact surrounded by assholes <laughs> i was like you know we have all been there where we're like is it did he just did she just did they say that did that just did anyone else see that is that like was i just crazy did i have a stroke like what did anyone see what just happened here and you, and you think that you're insane when in fact the people around you are just acting out and but but we take it personally. We think it's just us. And then we let that voice become this like festering cancer in our own brain that starts talking and talking and talking and becomes that governor. I want to talk about, which fits so nicely in what we were just saying. I want to talk about the subtitle of the book. So you, I kind of, I, I got the book and I saw the title and I was like limitless. You know, every part of me was drawn towards that title. And then I read the subtitle and the subtitle of the book is how to ignore everybody, carve your own path and live your best life. And it just made me really curious that you start, that you started out with ignore everybody. Why was that focus number one? When you were writing this book, because it's a good marketing hook, um, it was originally going to be called "Limitless: Doing Work That Matters, Not So Interesting," or "Consonance: How to Find Your Purpose." Nobody's going to buy a book they don't know the word of the front cover. And so I was talking to a friend of mine, and he's like, "Laura, your book's too good for you to have a title that like three people, including your mom, buy." So, um, what what do you want people to feel like when they're done reading this book? And I said, "You know, I've spent twenty years in executive search, interviewing people who are at the top." top of their game. I was calling them on behalf of my clients to recruit them away because they were super, super successful. And when I was talking to my friend, I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm just so sick of everyone being so limited by everyone else's idea of what they can be and who they should be and how they can be and God forbid what they can't be. And I just want them to just stop listening to all those people who told them that success only comes in one form and you have to lean in and bigger, better, faster, more and like rise and grind, baby. I just want them to stop listening to all those people and just go off and just live their own life already and do what they want to do. And he's like, so you want them to be limitless. You want them to ignore everyone, carve their own path and live their best life. And I was like, oh my God, I love you. And we don't talk nearly enough, but I need to hang up the phone right now and go write that book because <laughs> that's what I want people to do. So it's a little cheeky. In the book, I talk about how to find your inner circle, who you should get advice from and who you shouldn't get advice from. So I don't want people to ignore everybody, but it's probably true that you should ignore most of the people in your life who are volunteering advice for you. I'm glad you mentioned that. It was one of the questions I was going to ask you. So you, you said in the book, you know, we should stop giving votes to people in our lives that shouldn't have voices. And I love that. And it, it's so powerful and so hard, but the question that comes off that, the obvious question is how do we, how do you decide, you know, how do you, should your boss have a voice at, at what stage, your partner have a voice at what stage, your friends, your family, the guy, I saw a beautiful quote from Brene Brown yesterday where she said, you know, you know, you need to go inwards when you start polling strangers about what you should do. So when you start asking the guy in the coffee shop what you should do, does it change who, who we should give votes to? Firstly, how do we decide who that should be? And secondly, does it change as situations change? There are people whose advice I take about 
whether or not this speech is well-written, whether or not, and then there's other people that I ask whether or not the speech is well-delivered, right? There are people who I show my manuscript to. There are different people that I show the book proposal to. The people that you poll will change from time to time, but also when you bring them into the process will be dependent on what you need to know from them. So that's the second piece of the question. The first piece of the question is, who do you ask, right? And so I think, I think that your inner circle should have three different kinds of people in it. I think there should be, um, you know, a mentor, right? Somebody to whom you aspire, somebody who you think is great, somebody who is already paving the path. That person can be someone you know. It could also be somebody whose books you read, whose talks that, that, you know, that you listen to. But if it's somebody that you can reach out to, not as a mentor, but for mentoring moments, and I'll talk about the difference between that in a second. The, the second kind of person is a peer because everybody wants, com- you know, company on the struggle bus, right? Like if you feel like there's someone else going through, you feel like you're not insane. And then somebody that you're mentoring. So somebody who's a little bit behind you, because again, what's a great way to get rid of imposter syndrome? To feel like you know something. So helping somebody else along that's just like a step or two behind you is really helpful. And having those kinds of people in your inner circle allows you to have a group of people that you can you know, bump ideas off of and see what they're thinking and get their feedback and understand um, where you're going. But just to close the loop on the, the thing I just said about mentoring versus a mentor, a lot of us don't have that person in our lives because we feel like it's a big ask. I don't want to ask someone. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to, you know, cause trouble. So we don't ask someone to be our mentor. But how does someone become your mentor? Unless they're like assigned through your job or in some sort of formal way, the best way to do it is just to get mentoring. Ask somebody specifically who you think will be able to give you good feedback on this particular question for feedback on this particular question. Be invested, be smart, do your homework, listen, follow up. And when you do that, and then you come back to them for the next bit of mentoring and the next bit of mentoring and the next bit of mentoring, eventually it actually becomes a mentorship relationship. So it's, it is the way to find the people who want to give you advice is to find people who have walked down that path. You know, I always joke around that I want to get t-shirts printed that say, before you tell me what to do, show me what you've done. And on, on the back, it's like, hashtag, give me your PL because there's so many people who give advice who've never actually walked in the path that you want to walk. So like, why would you ask them for directions? This, yeah, just yes to everything you just said. And I just want to kind of laser focus in on a couple of things. One was when you said get specific. And I think if you're going to approach somebody who's ahead of you on the path, someone you admire, if you're going to shoot for the moon and just say, if, if I had access to this person, you know, that would solve a lot of my problems or they would have the answers to a lot of my questions. Be specific. Don't make an approach and say, Hey, would you like to be my mentor? Because that other person is guaranteed to be busy because they're successful. And they're going to look at that and go, Oh God, that's another thing for me to do. But if you go to them specifically and say, Hey, I would love 15 minutes of your time specifically on this question, you're way more likely to get it. Yes. The second part that I just picked up from everything that you said there actually relates to the conversation that you and I had off air before we started this conversation, which was get good at stalking. You know, we were, we were laughing about the fact that we, you were an executive search. I was a talent manager. And the two thing, the thing that we have in common is we got very good at stalking people got very good at finding the best of the best, hunting them down and asking for a conversation. And that is a skill. It takes experience and it takes throwing yourself in the mud a number of times. It absolutely does. It does. So Amy Cuddy, world famous, you know, 
power poser and TED talker. Um, she blurbed my book. It's the cover blurb of the book. And having her on the cover of my book got me on the Today Show because when my publicist sent out press releases, the the producer of the Hoda and Jenna Bush hour called me up and said, well, we've never heard of you, but Amy Cuddy said your book was a counterintuitive, fast moving kick in the pants. And we love Amy. So if she liked it, I feared we'd check it out. And I read it and I love it. And we want to have you on. And this is January. My book wasn't coming out till April. So Amy was the reason I told Amy the story, you know, a couple of years ago. And I was like, Amy, you, you realize that you're the reason that I got on the Today Show. But I didn't know Amy before that. And I called a mutual friend of ours and I'm like, is there any way that you could maybe make an introduction? And so she was like, yes, absolutely. She sent an email to both of us. I followed up with an email just to Amy. Amy never replied. Three weeks later, and I was like, I'd like to get a test, a, a blurb. Like I was very specific. Here's the manuscript. Here's what it's about. You know, here's why I would love you to blurb it. She never replied. So I sent her another email a couple of weeks later. Or no, sorry, this wasn't even for the blurb. I wanted to interview her for the book. So I sent her another email a couple of weeks later and another email a couple of weeks later. And she's not responding. And I'm like, I really like if there's anybody who has learned to live by their own set of rules and find what matters to them. And it is aimed like she would be perfect for it. And so I kept trying. And then she just she just never responded. And then this mutual friend was having an event. So I went to the event, but I go up to her and I'm like, hi. I just wanted to let you know, I'm Laura. I'm the one who's been stalking you for an interview, but don't worry. I already turned in the manuscript. It's too late. I, 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 I would have loved to interview, but I just wanted to just say hello and just face to face, just, you know, connect me with the crazy stalking person so that you know that I'm not actually insane and your life is not in peril. And she laughed and she said, um, well, since I wasn't interviewed for it, I can blurb it now would you like me to blurb your book? And then of course I was like, what do I do? How do I do it? Do I send it to her? Oh my God. Like it's like doing a few days and like, what if she doesn't respond to me again? So I had to stalk her for that. But like, what was the worst she was going to do? Say no. And if she said no, what position would I be in? Exactly the same position I was already in. So it didn't actually matter. And in the end, now we're friends. She lives in the same town as me. We like, you know, we like text each other. Like it's, it's it's incredible. And at the end of the day, it turns out she's just like a normal person. I also think that it's worth noting how many, and it sounds obvious, but how many no's you will get. Like a good friend of mine, she has a podcast, very successful podcast. And she had, and I think anybody who's got a podcast or is a journalist or in any way, their work depends on pulling in really smart people. There's always this one person that you have in mind. You're like, I, I will ask that person when I'm a completely different human being. Like, it doesn't matter how successful I get. I, I haven't asked that person yet because I'm going to ask that person when I can present to them my wonderfulness in all its perfection. And she had this one person and she waited and waited and waited years. And then eventually she asked and she got, not only did she get a no, I actually posted about it on social media. Not only did she get a no, but she got a kick up the butt. No, like a, almost like a, how dare you ask kind of a no. And, and she sent me a message. She just said, can we talk on the phone? I just need five minutes. I've just, you know, had this awful no from somebody I really respect and I just need someone to talk me down. And I called her and we were talking about it. And I said, you know what, exactly what you just said, you're in a different position now. You know, she's going to forget she ever said no to you five minutes <laughs> from when she said no. There is nothing to stop you asking again in a year's time. She's probably not even going to remember. You know, 
you have to learn, no matter how successful you get, you have to learn to take the no's or the not yet's or the maybe later's or I need more information. So part of stalking is learning to take the no's in your stride. I want to, I want to change tack for a second. I want to go back. I mean, I could talk about, (laughs) I could talk about this, this for, for the next hour, but I'm, I want to take a segue back. I want to go back to the word limitless. Let's, let's go back there. So the word limit, I mean, we've all seen the movie. If you haven't seen the movie limitless, watch it. It's, it's this intoxicating thought. You know, my husband and I, we've, we've watched the movie at least three times because it is such an intoxicating idea that there is a pill, that there is this pill that you could take that suddenly all your inhibitions, your fears, your self-limiting beliefs and behaviors would just disappear. And you would be left with the ultimate version of yourself, the ultimate version that you know is in there that you maybe glimpsed a couple of times. Now I'm, I'm not even going to ask you if there's a pill. I'm kind of, I know the answer to that, but so that there's not a pill, what does it take to start doing that work for ourselves? What's, what's the fastest route there? Is there a fast route there? Uh, so I think what it takes is having a conversation with yourself about that goal, that dream, that idea that you have that you're like, if only I could, wouldn't it be great if, man, I wish that there was a way to, right? Like those ideas, I I can tell you that over the years, like you, I'm sure, have had plenty of people who have called me up to get my advice about things. And I can tell you that the ones who are going to achieve what they want, they're so clear to me because they're the ones who have so much respect for their goal they're so cowed by it that they 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 almost can't even say it out loud. It's like they kind of whisper it with this reverence. And you can kind of tell that they look at it. We hear all the time, like, follow your passion. And um, as I write about a limitless, I think follow your passion is the world's worst advice. I think it's the spoken word illegitimate sister of the live, love, laugh tattoo. It is just, it is like this idea and it's, you know, it's, 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 it's forced upon us with all the social media. Also, we talked about earlier, it's this idea that as soon as you find your passion, everything's going to be smooth sailing. Everything's going to be great. No problem. Easy peasy. And the truth is that your passion is going to gut you. It's going to tear you apart. It's going to throw you down and lift you back up. And it's going to just like, it's going to kill you before it actually lets you see its beauty. And it's the people who don't just follow their passion, but are willing to invest in it. There's not a pill. You're going to have to do the work. You have to have the conversations. You have to mess up. You have to be scared. You have to know that you are on like the bleeding edge of your incompetence because that's where you figure things out. That's where the magic happens. But you you can't do that if you don't let yourself dream really big. And you can't do it if you let yourself be limited by what other people think you're capable of. Because nobody knows what you can really do. And I think it's in those moments when we admit to ourselves what maybe we really, really want. I also think it's it's worth pointing out here that you just said at the bleeding edge of your incompetence. 
and not the bleeding. Now I think it's really, it's, it's worthy of just investigating this for a moment because you didn't just say at the bleeding edge of your competence, which is what I think a lot of people might have heard just then. You, you're not at the bleeding edge of your, edge of your, your competence. This is not being comfortably uncomfortable. This is not, you know, a comfortable version of struggle. This is the bleeding edge of your incompetence. This is when you go way past your competence into a world where you are flailing, go to the edge of that. And that is where it is. It, that is where it is. It's, it's very interesting to me. I, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs um, and whenever I speak in, entre- like I, I will speak to an entrepreneurship um, business courses and there'll always be somebody in the back of the room who will hear my story and they're like, well, when you, when you dropped out of law school and joined that campaign, what were you going to do if he didn't win and you didn't end up in the white house? Or, um, when you, when you, when you had that moment of rage and you started your own business, what would you do if you didn't succeed? Or, you know, there were always these questions like, what would you do if you didn't succeed? And so I turned the question back and I'm like, well, you're a, you know, self-identified entrepreneur in, in waiting, you're sitting here in an entrepreneurship event or conference or class you've got an idea, right? You want to start a business. They're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm like, all right, well, what will you do if you fail? And they always know the answer. The answer is I, I've, I've got six months of savings or I'll move back in with my parents or I'll go get another job in a cubicle until I can, you know, come up with another plan. They always know their plan. So I'm like, all right, so this is the real question. What will you do if you succeed? And I have been asking this question for the last five years and it is always crickets. They never have an answer. And I think what happens is we spend so much time being, quote unquote, comfortably uncomfortable, right? We're in on the bleeding edge of our competence. We don't go any further because like we're afraid. We don't know what's going to happen. We're like, we're not so sure. And we're planning. What if I fail? But we never actually spend time thinking about what if I succeed? And that holds us back from actually succeeding. Does it start with, because I'm just thinking while you're talking, you know, Part of it for me when I've hit that and I've been in the, on the bleeding edge of my own incompetence more than I've ever been in my competence, I think, um, or at least it feels that way, that it starts for me in those moments where you catch that voice. And again, you know, we'll go back to that voice in your head. You catch that voice in your head saying something like, I couldn't have that. I couldn't do that. I couldn't make an impact there. I couldn't make a difference here because dot, 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 fill in the blank. But the, the catching of those moments where, you know, you suddenly, you see a limitless opportunity or you see that moment, you've trained your brain to, to, to go for opportunity and then something else happens and that voice it's quick and it's often quiet, but it is so powerful and it shuts, shuts down a part of your brain, that resourceful, curious part of your brain. When you hear that, or if you can catch that, cause it's so fast, if you can catch it, what comes next? Well, you know, my favorite quote from um, Eleanor Roosevelt, former first lady to, to FDR here in the U.S., uh, and it's hard to pick one because it's like picking your favorite child. But my favorite quote of hers is, you'd worry much less about what other people thought of you if you realized how seldomly they did. <laughs> so I think a lot of times that voice comes from the, oh, my God, I might embarrass myself or I can't do it or it's not going to work. And then what? And then what? And the truth is then nothing. Nobody cares. Nobody's paying that much attention. Nobody is focusing on you because everyone else is worrying so much about what everyone else thinks of them that they're forgetting to actually look at you. Like we're all having the same problem. It's pluralistic ignorance, but it's like the other direction, right? Where we're all just like, oh my God. So 
Um, how do you shut the voice down? I think you shut the voice down by remembering that failure is not finale. It's not the end of the line. It's not like it does not mean everything's over. There's always more options. Failure is fulcrum. It's actually the place where you learn and you grow and you shift and you change. I want to, I want to focus in on, on the word consonants. It's a big, big part of your book. Um, this word, and it was a new word for me. It was a word that I, that I hadn't heard before. I had to Google it and, and read its definition and, and kind of familiarize myself with it. So can you, why is this one word so important to, to you, what you do and, and the kind of the nuclear atom of the book? You know, it's funny because people say to me, oh, I've never heard that word before, but we've all heard dissonance, right? We've all heard its opposite cacophony, noise, organ rejecting, you know, organ rejection. Uh, it, 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 it is, we know what it feels like when things aren't working. And the opposite of dissonance is consonance. It's alignment, it's flow, it's harmony. And in the book, I talk about it, you know, about how it's what you do matching who you are. It's when, it's when, you know, those moments when you just feel like, you feel like the very best of what you do is being called upon to solve a problem that you actually care about. And you're being rewarded for solving that problem in a way that's meaningful to you. I mean, it could be money. It could be um, uh, uh, manifesting your values on a daily basis. It could be, um, uh, you know, networking with friends. It could be solving a problem, right? It's like, it is, it is the moment when you feel like you can walk through walls. You can leap over tall buildings. You're just, you are in the zone. And we do our best work when we're in consonance. We do our best work when the best of what we can do is being called for to solve a problem that's meaningful to us. And we're being rewarded for in ways that we actually care about. And so few of us have that in our work life because we're resigned to feel like we can't pursue that because we have to pursue this idea of success as built by everybody else. And then we get there, we get to the top and we're like, well, the top of what? Like this isn't, this is all I have now is just more stress, right? Like the higher you go, it, it gets harder and harder. And so my, my wish for people who read the book is to figure out not what success looks like externally, right? Like what do the Kardashians tell us that we should be doing? Who cares, right? There are these ideals that are being put out that are in front of us that just don't feel right. Like they just, they, they feel dissonant to who we are. I use the word consonance because it, it really is the thing that I want people to achieve is this harmony, this alignment, this flow. And it stems back from my days doing executive search when people would say, look, we want somebody who went to an Ivy League school, uh, super articulate, who can raise tons of money, who's a perfect manager. Like they just give a laundry list of quote unquote great traits of a CEO or of a leader. And I'm like, okay, what kind of personality are they going to have? And will it be consonant with your organization? Or when they get here, is it going to be like, what's like, ooh, record scratch moment. And so I always talked about talent as needing to be a sort of a, a, a consonant thing also. And I, I can really speak to that from, you know, you talked about your background in executive search and, and my background in finding talent to sign to a, a management agency. And I, I always had these moments and I'm sure you had the same where you, you see somebody, you either see them on LinkedIn, you, you, you hear about them and they're at the top of their game. You know, they are the authority in this particular field. They've done these incredible things. They, people speak so highly of them. And then I would go and seek them out as a speaker or go and seek them out to, to become 
become like an influencer in their field and I would talk to them. And in some occasions, the level of disconnect from who they were, like who they were in the moment and what they had done, you could tell that, you know, you've done these amazing things, but you feel zero passion for this. You feel zero to use your word, which was so beautiful. You use, you feel zero reverence towards what you're doing here or why you're doing it. And because of that, the influence that you can have, the impact that you're able to have is dramatically reduced. I can't, I can't put you out there into the world. You'll have, you'll have very little impact and which is such a shame because you've done so many incredible things. Yeah. It's funny when I, uh, when I used to walk into potential clients offices and tell them about our firm and the work that we did and why we did the work they did more often than not, I would get a reaction, which went something like, wow, you really love what you do. Or, oh my gosh, your confidence about how you do this work and the solution that you can provide is contagious. And, you know, I would always feel like, of course I love my work. I have the best team in the world. We're doing the best work in this field. Like I am proud of what we do. I'm passionate about it. And more often than not, we sold the deal because when you are so passionate and you are so real and your client can tell that you are going to take their problem into your arms and it will become your shared problem until the problem goes away. They can't help but want to get on board with that. And I used to tell people that would come to work for me all the time, like, we're not selling talent. We're not selling our database. We're not selling our process. We're selling trust. At the 10 year mark, there was actually a moment where I didn't do that very well. And it's just, this is a story that doesn't reflect very well on me, but I was literally like doing the research on the potential client on the elevator on the way up to see him. I had just like, I had lost my passion. I wasn't as excited. I still was able to fake it. I still went in. I, I faked it really well. I, I, I was my usual, you know, brand of like, or my usual combination of like wisdom about the field and a little bit of moxie about the fact that we were doing work a little bit different than the way our competitors did. And, and, and I knew how to play the part. I didn't, my heart wasn't in it. And we sold the work, but in the elevator on the way down, I texted my business partner on like, but not because it should have. And I think we should have a conversation about whether or not I'm still in this game. Like, I think maybe it's time for this firm to have different leadership because that was unfair to everybody in this firm. And I should not have done that. And that takes so much courage. Like I can, I can feel, and I've been in a similar situation with a company that that I owned for many years. And I remember the courage and the bravery and the heart shatteringness of that moment where your baby that you have built, that you have loved, that with every cell of passion in your body, you have, you have lifted it with your bare hands. And then to have this moment of stepping back and looking at it and going, I still love you, but I don't think that I'm meant for here anymore. It's, it's really true. When, when we started, when I started the firm, I started it, as I mentioned, because I thought that there was a better, smarter, faster, more profitable, more authentic way where I could do the work better for our clients, charging them less money and also paying my people better than industry average. I'd figured out I'd unlocked the key and I started the firm and that took a whole lot of like moxie. It took a lot of bravado. It took me walking into potential clients offices and being like, you know, the way that executive search has been done for the last 50 years. Well, there's a better way. And I remember 
in my old, the, my, my, the search firm that I was at, the big established firm where I learned from the best and the brightest about how to do it. I remember walking into my CEO's office and being like, there is a better way. And he was like, there's the door. And he was like, you can stay and keep doing it our way because you're great. And we love you. Wonderful. But if you want to do it your way, you're going to have to leave. And I remember in that moment realizing, well, if I've, if I've identified that we are not part of the solution in the way that I think we are, then that only leaves me in one place, which is that I'm part of the problem. All right. So let's, let's dive into this word. Let's dive into this word, consonants. It's made up of four pillars, calling, connection, contribution, and control. So let's, let's start out with calling. Let's go there first. Because again, it's, it's a word I don't hear often. You know, I, I hear, I hear purpose a lot, you know, you hear passion a lot, but I think that your definition is very different to, to the ones that we're used to. So let's start with that. How do you define calling, finding your calling? So calling is that gravitational force. It's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's a business that you want to build. It's a bottom line that you want to grow. It's a leader who inspires you. It's a cause you want to serve. Maybe it's a family you want to nurture, right? It doesn't have to be quote unquote paid work. Frankly, that's harder work. So it is the thing that you actually care about. And and we get it wrong because we confuse calling with purpose. We confuse purpose with service and we confuse service with sacrifice as if the only jobs that matter are the ones where we're literally taking off our shirts and handing them to poor kids in need. When in fact, you're calling maybe something completely different, right? It, it may be that your purpose in life is curing cancer, in which case that's amazing. It may be that your purpose in life is creating enough financial stability that your kids get to make different decisions than you had to make. There's no friend, you know, judgy friend going, I don't know. Do you think that job really matters? Like the only, and this is why I say the only one who gets a vote is you. And we have to stop giving votes in our life to people who shouldn't have voices because your purpose is just your purpose. And the other reason that we get calling wrong is that we think that you are born with a calling as if there can only be one. But in fact, throughout our lives, it's constantly changing. I'm, I'm just really glad that you, that you covered this area because it's one that, like I said, I often, I often struggle with the word purpose. You know, what is your purpose for being? What's your reason for being? What's the reason you're here? And the answer to that is, you know, I don't know. It's, it's changed so many times, but ask me where I feel called. Ask me what keeps drawing me back in. Now that I can answer, that I can answer clearly. And and that for me feels like the difference. This word purpose feels so lofty. It feels so elevated. It feels like such a defined, you know, your reason, your reason for being on this planet. But calling is, is literally that is what keeps calling you, what keeps calling you back. Yeah, what is the thing that's interesting to you? And, you know, I say this having spent 20 years doing executive search for nonprofits, for mission-driven organizations, universities, foundations, advocacy organizations. I, I am an unimpeachable source on the sentence that I'm, the very controversial sentence I'm about to say, you can have purpose. You can have calling that only has to do with you. It doesn't have to be nonprofit work. It doesn't have to be mission-driven work. It does not have to be service or sacrifice for it to actually be purposeful, as long as it's purposeful to you. Now, if you are literally like harming small children and, you know, pouring oil into the ocean, I may have an issue with you. But you know, other than these super egregious things, it, 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 it has to matter to you. It has to be the thing that you care about because we cannot be insatiably hungry for someone else's goals. 
And there is simply no way to pursue something that is exciting to you if it's not actually exciting to you. The the other myth about it is that it has to take over your entire life, right? Like you, that, you know, it not only does it have to be your entire reason for breathing, but it has to take over every single moment of your life. It, it can't be a side project. It can't be something that you love to do in pockets of time outside of the main thing that you do to pay your bills and keep everybody safe. That's the other one that I feel holds a lot of people back, you know, until I can quit my job and dedicate my life solely to this, then I won't touch it at all. You know, it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be that that sacrificial. It doesn't have to be that sacrificial. And we, you know, it's funny because there's sort of two schools of thought on this. There's the like hustle porn. It's got to be everything. Rise and grind, work harder. You have to work 800 hours a week or you don't really, you're not really dedicated to it. And then there's the other side, which is like work-life balance. Let's put work over there and life over here. And never the twain shall meet. And the truth is like, if you are on social media at all, you probably have people that you work with in your friend group, which means your life is already, there's already not a wall between them. It's already crossed over. And, you know, the, it's, it's funny. Millennials get a lot of grief about basically everything that's wrong with the workplace today. But I actually love millennials. And first of all, the oldest millennials, like 43 years old, like they're not playing you know, uh, uh, you know, Mario Kart and eating hot pockets in mom's basement anymore. They're actually like leading people, they're managers, they've got kids, like it's like they're not children, but they are the first generation that has always been on social media. They've always lived their life out loud. They've always been the same person at home and at work because they haven't hidden in the way that my generation, Gen X and the generations above me were able to like be somebody at work and be someone else at home. And I don't think that we are exhausted from being too busy. I think we're exhausted from the costume changes that we have to go through to be different people in different places. And so, you know, being able to do something that calls to you is just, it, it, it is such a better way to think about it than like, what's your purpose. And also, you know, when Limitless first came out, I did something like 150 podcasts in this crazy book tour. And one of the dumbest questions that I got asked was, what advice would you give your 22-year-old self? And I remember thinking to myself, my 22-year-old self, who is holding an iPhone and listening to a podcast on it that was recorded over the internet, None of those three things existed when I was 22. So even if I did know my purpose, even if I did have a calling, the world around you changes. So how could you say that it's still going to be, you know, the, the same thing? That's just stagnation. When it, let's, let's go into the next one, the connection. And you just spoke there about, you know, millennials and, and their leaders now. And this one was a real leadership kind of aha moment for me. Um, and connection being kind of our need to belong and see a direct line between the work we're doing and our calling. Now we can find that for ourselves, but more when it's really powerful for me is when those who are in leadership positions or mentorship positions in our life are able to point it out for us, are able to, to join the dots because often we can't see what's, what's right in front of us. Is this something that as leaders, we need to figure out how to be able to do for our teams, for those who look up to us more, be able to draw that line? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, the For years, when I ran my company, I we used to have an annual retreat and the company was all virtual. 
we were COVID cool before COVID was cool, right? Like we, it was, we, we literally had staff all, all over the world and we'd bring them together once a year for a retreat. We'd have a, we'd like rent out of the whole bed and breakfast. We'd have everybody together and I would get up and I would give the state of the union and I would, you know, talk about where we were as a firm and the, 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 the sector and all these big giant ideas and big lofty numbers. And my team would just sort of sit there and kind of glaze over and you know they go through the motions for the weekend and after doing this a couple two years maybe three years i remember sitting down with an executive coach and i was like i don't get it why aren't they as excited about the potential and where we're going as i am they're all here they all left the big firms to come to this like magical mystery tour of this startup operation why aren't they excited and he's like because nothing you said involved them at all. And I was like, it all involves them. They are part of what's the machine that's going to get us there. And he's like, yeah, but they don't see it. You're talking to them about the future and these big goals. And all they're thinking of is this week, this month, maybe if you're lucky this quarter, how do I make my numbers? I've got a report due to a client on Wednesday. You know, are they moving staff meeting from Fridays to Tuesdays? They are thinking about how their life is affected right now today. And you're talking to them about some magical future date. You're like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 wah. Like they just, they don't see themselves in what you're saying. And so for leaders, it may be that it is so clear to you how your team's work connects to the direction, the strategic direction, the goals, the numbers, the metrics, whatever, but it may not be clear to them. So it's really important to, to, to when you give that state of the union, it's not about you. It's not about the future. It's not about the firm. It's about them and who they are. You're selling the Kool-Aid every single day as a leader. You're not talking about big future goals. They don't care about that. They're not, that is irrelevant to them. So you have to talk about what is relevant. And that means helping them see how their work connects to the bottom line. Love that. I interviewed um, Ben Zander, who's the conductor at the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, incredible human being. And he had this perspective on leadership, which I love, which speaks so beautifully to what you were just saying there. And he was saying, you know, it is your responsibility as a leader, regardless of what you're leading, whether it's an orchestra, whether it's a team, to look out and see the eyes of the people that you're leading shine. If their eyes aren't shining, that is your direct responsibility because you have not managed to enroll them in the vision that you have. And you need to take absolute responsibility for that. And as you said, that involves getting down in it and and having conversations and figuring out what, what is their calling? What does it take for them to feel connected to this? Yeah. And what we did after that is we actually instituted a quarterly dashboard. And on that quarterly dashboard, we had things like, like we talked, I talked to my staff, what, why are you doing this work? Why do you care about this work? And some of them cared about the work because they cared about certain issues. They wanted to affect climate change. They wanted to give women more advancement opportunities, you know, whatever the thing was that they cared about. Again, we're doing work in the mission driven space. Maybe they cared about, um, they cared about uh, uh, diversity and how many leaders of color, LGBTQ women were put into leadership positions. Maybe they just cared about making money, right? Like how much money were they going to make? And so our metrics would have things like the reports on the diversity statistics of our placement or the reports about which um, uh, 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 verticals we were in in the nonprofit sector. Or there'd be a report about, you know, what the bottom line was and, you know, where we were in terms of percentage of profit because everybody knew that there was profit sharing at the 
end of the year so they could look at that number and do the math and know where they were going to end up. And so every quarter, and it took me forever to do because I'm slow and bad at math, but it mattered to my team. And I was able to get so much more out of my team because not only did they see the numbers that they cared about, but they felt involved. They felt invested. They knew that I cared about what they cared about. So suddenly when I got up to give the speech, I didn't talk about where we were going in the future. I talked about how great there was their work was today. Oh, and by the way, that will enable us to go here in the future, which by the way, will give you more of these things that you care about, right? Like it was always, it started with them and it came back to them every time. But I had to I had to get rid of the assumptions in my brain about what they cared about. And the first assumption was, and this is a huge mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make, is I thought that the entrepreneurship of the endeavor was actually something exciting to them. And I had to learn that just because they were working in an entrepreneurial endeavor did not make them entrepreneurs. I was the entrepreneur. They were on the magical mystery bus, but at the end of the day, they got a paycheck and they were fine. I had to get okay with that. I remember when I when I first started um, Ode, and for the first couple of years, you know, you you're representing these individuals, um, a lot of which whose primary income is speaking, and so you're measuring the metrics, right? You're like, you know, this person made this much money last month, this person made this much money last month, you know, as a total that adds up to, and very quickly, I f- I would see their eyes gloss over at that. You know, that the the idea of how much money someone else was making was not at all interesting to them. And then we flipped the conversation and we started talking about impact. We started talking about, you know, every time one of these individuals, the reason I started this business is that every time one of these individuals hits the stage, there is 500, 1000, 20 people in front of them that have access to an idea that can completely change the game for them. And we started tracking audience numbers and I had a big, you know, those automatic photo frames, electric photo frames. I had a big electric photo frame up on the wall in the office. The first thing that you saw when you walked in and every week it was, it was a office coordinator. She hated the job. It was her job to add up all the audience numbers over the course of the past week. It was a fiddly job and update, update that. And, you know, our first goal was a million and we hit a million and then it was, we kept going. And when I left that business, we were up and above 4 million. Um, People's lives touched by the work that we do. And that flip, that changing of the conversation completely, it changed the game for my team. It changed the game for us as an organization to stay connected. But that moves on really nicely to the the next pillar, which is the pillar of contribution. So can you speak to speak to that? What does contribution mean in the, in the frame of limitless? Yeah. So we think about our work and how our work is contributing to society And that just exacerbates that first problem of calling and and purpose. So I use contribution differently. And I say, if connection is all about the work, contribution is really all about you. How does this work contribute to the life that you want to live, the lifestyle you'd like to have, the money you'd like to make, the flexibility you'd like to have, the personal freedom? How does it contribute to the work, the, the the career trajectory that you'd like to build, how fast you want to grow and in what ways, how does it allow you to manifest your values on a daily basis? So contribution is really this question of, does this work provide for you something more than just a paycheck, if that's what you're looking for? And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll often describe it as at the end of the day, you know, you, you don't you don't want to 
go to your, you don't want to go to your, your grave, but like this person worked X numbers of hours. You want to have left something on this earth, whether it's a, a, a beautiful family, whether it's a business that you've built, a cause that you've served something, but does this work allow you to do it? And does this work allow you to maybe have that side hustle that you really care about? Does it allow you to buy the Maserati in a beach house? Maybe you just, maybe you don't care about having a calling or a purpose and the work doesn't really matter to you and you're, you can't really see your connection to the bottom line, but it's allowing you to have the flexibility to go, you know, play a sport that you want to play, you know, until, you know, every single morning and then get to work at 10 AM or something like that. I mean, everybody has a different reason for being on this earth at different times. And And it's also about consciously, I'm just thinking while you're talking, consciously designing your life. This is about consciously designing your life, about looking at what are all the elements? What is my, you know, what is my calling? How do I want to feel connected to that? What, what life do I want to live and what would contribute to the life that I want to design here? It's about, as you've said, not measuring your success against what someone else has defined as successful, but sitting down with a piece of paper and going, right, I'm going to design a life that works for me, my family, my bank account, because that's an important part of it, um, my, my physical needs, and also the things that really touch me and mean something to me. Yeah. So here's a perfect example. Um, when I was 22 and dropping out of law school and joining that presidential campaign, I, I had no, I had no connection at all. I was the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee for the guy who got the coffee. I mean, I was like the peon. I was like, you know, nobody. And I, you know, the next thing we'll talk about is control. I certainly had no control whether they were going to send me to New York City or Little Rock. It's like they were, I just went wherever they told me to go. But I had all the calling in the world. I mean, I was so inspired by this presidential candidate. I, I, it was, it was the raison d'etre. Like it just, it was like a, an organizing principle in my life. In terms of contribution, I was earning all the ramen soup and idealism I could eat. So it's not like it was contributing to my bank account, but I knew that it was allowing me to manifest my values. I got involved in this presidential campaign because I heard this guy talk about the idea of service in exchange for college tuition, that there was nothing that was wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And I was like, yes, change yourself while you change your community. That makes so much sense. And it allowed me to pursue that while also being very much in touch with um, the idea that if he won, I could have a pretty interesting career trajectory, right? Like there were options, there were opportunities that would be uh, that would be available to me that would not have otherwise. So at that point in my life, I, I had, as I mentioned, no connection, but I had tons of calling and tons of contribution. Now, you know, I'm 50. I'm about to send a kid off to college. If somebody calls me up and is like, hey, would you come, you know, speak halfway around the world uh, when we have this question of whether or not there's, you know, a Delta variant, maybe you'll get sick, maybe you won't. You'll be gone for at least four days. Uh, You're going to have to quarantine for two weeks when you get back. Your kid's leaving for college in three weeks. So you're really not going to see him in the last three weeks that he's home. Oh, and by the way, we're going to pay you $500. That's going to be a hard pass for me, right? Because that, that is not allowing me to, even though it's my calling to go out and serve that that audience, it's and and it's connected very much to the work that I'm doing. That's not contributing to my life in a way that is additive right now in this moment. And so at every age and at every life stage, we want and need different amounts of each of these four C's. But 
we have to be honest with ourselves about what it is that we're actually looking for. And there may be moments in your life where you want to work because it's, it's manifesting your values. There may be moments in your life where you want to work because you want to maximize your income. In my search firm, we used to say we can either maximize impact, we can maximize personal freedom and flexibility, or we can maximize profit. You can't do all three at the same time. You could do two of them. You could do one really well. You could do two of them fairly well, but you can't do all three. And so we wanted to maximize impact in the world, which is why we chose the clients we chose. We wanted to maximize personal freedom and flexibility, which is, you know, I wanted to be home with my kids. I wanted to be around and raise them and pick them up from school a couple times a week. And here's the fun part of that, Jules, is that we maximized impact and personal freedom and flexibility, but we actually all ended up making more money than we would have at the big traditional firm anyway, because when we maximized for the first two we cared about, the third naturally followed. But we had to get very clear on what we wanted the work to contribute to our lives, or else we were making decisions based on too many factors. But that's limitless thinking, right? Like that to that is completely limitless thinking. To to go, I am able to do great work. I am able to do great work that I believe matters. I am able to be paid in a way that is valuable to me. And I'm able to do it in a way that works for me and my family. No one moment in there, no one thing there negates any other. That's limitless thinking. And to actually question, you know, where do I have a limit on my thinking here? Do I believe that if I want to get paid really well, I need to forget my family for a decade, feel disconnected from my community for a decade, you know, to go in with limitless thinking makes all the difference in the world as to what you're able to create. It is. And I will also, I mean, this is a moment, you know, when I, when I give the talk about limitless from stage, this is the moment where I give an impassioned plea for my favorite word, which is the word ambition. And I do this specifically when I have an audience of women and, and, and I'll ask them like, how many of you in the audience feel comfortable just screaming from the rooftops? I am ambitious. And usually four people will raise their hand in a group of a thousand. And it's usually the four guys standing in the back. Um, cause we, as women feel like we can't have limitless thinking and we can't have all of those things. You can't have it all, right? I mean, you can, you just might not be able to have it all at once. And it's a matter of deciding what is important to you and not letting society tell you what's important to you. But I ask these women, I'm like, all right, fine. If you're not comfortable saying I am ambitious, let me ask you a better question. Would having more money, more time, more resources, more power, more access, more foundation, more leverage, more whatever, allow you to show up better for the people you love and the causes you hold dear. And that is such a, that's a powerful place to come from. You know, if you just imagine somebody sitting in a room doing the ask for whatever it is you're asking for, more money, more time, more responsibility, a complete change in your career to come from a place of this is my responsibility to create this for myself, for those I love, for the causes I'm committed to. Um, this is a sense of absolute responsibility that I have as opposed to, you know, that kind of almost, and you're right. Often ambition comes with an apology. You know, I'm, you know, yes, I am ambitious. Yes. I do want more. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's probably not right to want more. Yes. I am. You know, I do have enough. Yes. It's okay. To, to come from that unapologetically powerful place, which is, you know, I am able to create better than this and I am able to contribute better than this if we are able to create this. That's a very different frame to come from. Now, I want to, I want to go into control because I think that this is a really important one. Um, and I don't know, I'm hoping you're going to have more answers on this than, than I have, um, which is, you know, we are living 
in a world right now where control has been diminished. You know, a lot of us, we don't have control about how we work. We don't have control about whether we work with COVID-19. We don't have control about where we work from, you know, whether we can see our families. So control prior to this world was important, feeling like you could control your destiny. Within this world, having some sense of control, I feel is almost paramount to our mental health. How do we feel a sense of control in a world where that control, many elements of that control has been stripped away? I mean, that is a, you know, it is, it is a tough question now, obviously. Right. Um, but I mean, I think some of it is going back to this question of, we don't feel like we're in control, which means we feel like we're failing at things. Well, are we failing at things or are we just learning a new way of doing things? Uh, I, I, I mentioned in the very beginning uh, when we were speaking that there are a lot of people who are asking themselves when life goes back to normal, is the normal I'm going to go back to really the life that I want? And I think for a lot of us, letting go of the control of trying to just go back to the way things were allows us to open up our lens to the way things can be right? It's very different to try to, in a current COVID world or in a post-COVID world, create a pre-COVID world, when really what we're learning is that there's so much more that can be done. I mean, think about think about the, the, the restaurants in your neighborhood who, if they're anything like ours, got really good at figuring out takeout service and to-go cocktails. And I think we try to control factors that are out of our control. That way lies madness. But I think if we think about what is in our control, it becomes more of uh, more opportunity than um, a constraint. When we feel a lack of control, I think our first instinct is to try to control more. And, and, and I think a better thing to do is to allow other people to find their place in it. Because if you're trying to do everything yourself, you don't actually give anyone an opportunity to grow and to shine and to rise. Increments of gradual process, of, sorry, gradual progress. Either we, you know, we go deep into control where we're like, right, that's it. There's a schedule. As you said, there's a schedule. There's a, there's a thing. This has to be done. The children need to be homeschooled. We go deep into control to try and, and protect our mental health or we lose all kinds of control. Now, I should say... I should say for people who don't know me, I am a control freak of the highest nature. I mean, I sit in the aisle seat of every airplane, not because I think I'm going to survive the fiery ball of death that is a crash, but because I just want the illusion of control. That is how much of a control freak I am. I am not somebody who like I ran the first mile of my life when I was 40 and within two years ran three marathons. Like I am an all in 100% hang on by your fingernails. This ride is not for the faint of heart type of person. So when I say the way to get more control is to give yourself grace and forgiveness, it's not because I'm like, let's breathe into our liver energy. Everybody let's do a yoga pose, Srivasana. Like I'm not mellow. <laughs> So when I say this, I say this like you can be super intense about giving yourself partial credit. That's okay. Like break down what matters to you, pursue that, and everything else actually takes care of itself. My final question, what does, what does limitless look like in your life right now? That's a great question. Um, I think what it looks like in my life at this very moment is saying, I have 72,500 words written for my next book manuscript. 
And I could be working really hard on it right now because, you know, there's another surge. People are, you know, inside. I'm not super busy right now because it's the summer. So, you know, again, there's not tons of conferences going on right now. I'm not getting on a plane to go to a state to go speak somewhere. Um, And the fall is going to get busy. So I better, you know, get this book done. But again, I've got that son who's leaving in three weeks for college and he's joining the Air Force, doing Air Force ROTC. So like, it's not like he's coming home in the summers, like he's leaving, he's gone. And Limitless to me is ignoring everybody who says, you got to get that book out. You got to finish it. You better hustle. Like the world's going to open back up. Big conference is coming. Do it right now. And it's me saying to myself, you know, I am not going to sit on my deathbed and look back and go, gosh, I really wish I got that next book done a month earlier. And just saying it's evergreen. It'll come out when it comes out. It's going to be awesome. It'll probably be better if I let it percolate a little bit longer. And what matters to me right now and the fact that I've built this career as an author and a speaker is so that I could be around and so that it can contribute to my life in ways where I can actually be home. My calling is helping as many people as I can get unstuck and live lives that matter to them, not to me, not lives of purpose, not lives of value, but lives that matter to them, to themselves. And the way that I connect to that is by writing and reaching out to people, inspiring them. And right now I'm just going to do it over social media because I don't want to work on the book. I want to make sure that I'm working on memories with my kid because that's the one piece of this entire crazy trajectory of motherhood that I cannot control, that I, I cannot press. I, like, I wish I had a pause button because I love him as a person, but I also like him as a person and I don't get that. So this is what I can control is how I spend my time right now. So it's sort of an interesting question when we're talking about like leadership and professional stuff that like for me, Limitless is saying, you know, The world's not going to come to an end if I wait three more weeks and actually just make memories with my kid. And that in itself is one of the most powerful applications of of everything that you talk about, of of a calling, a connection, a contribution, but also taking the control enough to say, look, I can can pause a book. I can't pause my children. And, And so for the next three weeks, you'll find me here and the book will wait. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your thinking and and where you come from. It's deeply appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. This has been great fun. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. 
And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.